This week on Writers Inc. For me, it's it's all the same. Whether it's a book I'm reading or a film I'm watching or the old guy down at the uh, at the bar going, let me tell you what happened one time. It's all what I call capital S story. It's all the same. The language is different. The tropes can be different. But really. I always equate it to building a house with your story is your foundation. And then every time you sort of go through your first draft is throwing up framing and your second draft is putting up drywall. And when you get to the point where you're just adjusting picture frames, you're, you're kind of done. So for me, film books, poetry, it's all means to an end of imparting an experience that hopefully resonates with not only me, me, the reader, but also other people that are reading that stuff as well. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Well, Happy New Year, gang. Uh, I know uh, the gang isn't all here. Zach is on uh, on the road on his vacation, so he's not with us today. But uh, it is January 2nd as you're listening to this. So Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Christine, JD. How you guys doing? I'm actually waiting. Like you got caught in snow, right? Like you had to leave. Did you actually get caught in that storm? I didn't. I didn't get caught, but we ended up leaving two days later than we wanted to because I had a flat tire. Oh man! Like I, I'm in New England. I've been expecting snow this whole time, and we have gotten nothing but rain. Oh, but it's it's cold. It's it's crazy cold out. Like it it was. I think this morning when I got up, it was like five degrees. Um, but like nothing but rain. It like it warms up just enough where it just it doesn't freeze into snow. Um. So yeah, I'm a little bit sad about that. Your car broke down. That's the worst. Like right, you know, on a holiday trip. Yeah, I mean, we were going to leave on. Th- we were going to leave ahead of the storm as it was hitting last week, and then uh, ended up with you know a flat tire, and so it delayed us until Christmas Day. Um, and you know, th- like Christine will attest, uh, cars are always <laughs> an issue. They always take three times as long to fix as you think they will, right? No, they do. Yeah, yeah. We. I, I was just telling Jay uh, earlier. My car broke down yesterday in my garage. It just uh, was dead. <laughs> and I tried to jump it. Um, couldn't get it to jump. I had to call a tow truck. Tow truck took three hours. <laughs> and uh, they did get it jumped, but he wasn't sure if it was a very dead battery or the alternator. So now it's in the shop. They don't have the parts. And I'm supposed to leave to go to the airport literally in an hour. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to hitch a ride and just not worry about that because I'm like, that's fine. Parts are a real issue right now. Did I tell you guys what I did to my 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 Challenger? No. no. Oh yeah, this this is this is bad. I probably shouldn't talk about this on the air, but um, so my wife and I we had she had a propane tank in the back of her Jeep, and we were both kind of running around town. Um, and she said, "Well, can you meet me over at the Jeep dealership because I'm getting some." She was getting something done with her tires there, and like pick up the propane tank and get it filled. So I'm like, "Okay, I'm right down the street from there." So I I pull into that parking lot, and I left the the Challenger running. And it's a manual transmission, so like I had to put it into neutral, and I it's got a push pedal emergency brake. So I I keyed that in, but like I didn't. 
didn't shut the car down, um, jumped out really quick. And she was parked maybe, I don't know, 50 feet from where I had stopped, like in their parking lot. So I left my door open and I ran over to her Jeep. I got the propane tank out, turned back around and my car wasn't there anymore. <laughs> oh, no. So my first thought was, crap, somebody just stole my car out of the, the Jeep dealership parking lot. Um, but then I saw people pointing at the trees at the edge of the parking oh. lot. <laughs> So I start following where they're pointing and I walk over there and apparently like, I mean, I know I pushed the emergency brake in, but with the car in neutral, like the car weighs like 4,500 pounds. It's heavy. So like it apparently it started rolling like really slow and then it just, it picked up speed and picked up speed and it dropped off the edge of their parking lot backwards and like went off a little bit of a, a cliff that was maybe, I mean, not, not, it was super steep, but dropped about 15 feet and got caught in a tree. Um, so they, and it was running the whole time. So they, they had to tow it out. Um, and it, it didn't do a whole lot of damage. It dinged up like the trunk. Like there's, you know, it looks like I hit a tree, you know, in the, in the back of the car, um, trash the, the light on that side and stuff like that. But they told me it's six to eight months for the parts to come in. Um, and I don't have collision insurance on the car because I, I flat out own it for cash and like, I rarely drive it. So I just didn't make sense to to have it, but like, it's an $8,500 repair. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a decent car. So it's like, I'm going to do it because it's the car is still worth more. But like it was just total stupidity. So, oh, yeah, that that's the problem with cars these days is like if it's beyond, say, you know, like a flat tire or or something simple like that, it's thousands of dollars in repairs, all, no matter what it is, no matter how insignificant it looks or, or you think it is. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna pick up collision on it. I mean, it's probably stupid to not have it, but it's just I don't drive it that much, and I think it just it, you know, when you go down to your finances, it's just one of those things. Like, why pay for that if you never use it? Because I I haven't wrecked before, you know. So it's like I've never had to use it before. But like the one time I don't have it on the car, I do that. So, did the Jeep dealer yeah. try uh, try try and sell you a Jeep? Like, you know, if you've been <laughs> driving a Jeep, that thing wouldn't have, wouldn't let go. <laughs> they they offered to buy it, and they keep offering to buy my wife's Jeep too. Um, cause apparently there's a huge shortage right now on just on vehicles in general. Um, yeah. I, I, from what I'm reading, it sounds like that's clearing up, but it was a COVID thing. So like they, you know, used vehicles, especially the ones that hold value, like Jeep Wranglers, like they don't seem to go down in value. They just sort of sit there. Um, and they've been trying to buy that back from her forever, but we, we like it. It's our little four wheel drive for when yeah. we actually do get snow. Yeah. yeah. These car prices are, are crazy right now. I can't believe how much they're asking for them. And there's, um, like months delay on getting new cars a lot of the time. So Yeah. Cause we, like, I need a new car, but I'm like in this market, I'm just kind of delaying as long as I can. So hopefully that does clear up. Cool. What else is going on with you guys? Well, I got a, uh, as you guys are listening to this in real time, I'm, I'm sort of doing, a uh, uh, an appreciation for my platform for, for the past 10 years or so on my blog, I'm doing something called your creative journey, which is a 180 day uh, journaling exercise and it's completely free. And when I, when I say free, I mean, you don't even need to put in your email address. If you just go to the authorlife.com and click on blog starting today, um, every day there'll be a post there and, uh, it's going to cover six months and, and each month has a theme. So, you know, there's like, you know, physical health and, um, relationships, creativity, time management, just a lot of things that authors, I know, including myself, struggle with, and uh, so I'm really excited for that. It's it's the it's sort of the first publication I've done in a while, and um, yeah, it's it's available today. So hopefully, people can check it out. Cool. What about you, Christine? What are you working on? Just slowly working on my launch for my uh, pen named co-authored series. So that's mostly what I've been doing, and you know, getting excited to see that out in January. <laughs> I'm trying to wrap edits on that book, the one that I wrote off the outline. Um, going going pretty smooth. I mean, I, I 
basically followed the outline for the most part through the whole thing. Um, there's one storyline that I threw in there that, you know, I, I really love, but like it really doesn't need to be in the book. Um, and it kind of over, over complicates things. And the, the final book was one, I think 126,000, um, total words. So I'm, I'm stripping that storyline out, um, which kind of hurts because it, you know, I, I just, I liked it, but you know, again, it just doesn't need to be in there. Um, so I think the final book is going to end up around 110,000 and I'm, I'm hoping to turn that one over to my agent. Um, hopefully sometime early January and then move on to the next one. Nice. Yeah. Can you, can you save those and, and, and repackage them as like a, you know, a short story or a, a short novella? Like a, I, as a I might, like I, I basically, I came up with a really cool way to, to launder money and steal identities. Um, but it just, it had nothing to do with my, my original storyline. It was just basically something like I found, I had to explain something. I was like, well, maybe they're doing this. And then I stumbled into something and I don't want to give away what it was, but like, it was a really cool thing that, you know, I, I found on a money laundering website. It was actually one of the government websites. I, I still, you know, having coming out of the finance industry, like I'm still on a bunch of newsletters that I used to get back then. And they're fun to read because you get to read what people are actually doing to, to launder money and where they're doing it and stuff like that. And, you know, most criminals are stupid, but the financial ones, they, they tend to, you know, raise the bar a little bit so it's entertaining reads um so yeah i'll probably do something with it i mean it could honestly i could probably spin it into a standalone thriller um at some point if i want to do something like that but we'll see but i usually put those all in a folder somewhere tell myself i'm going to use it and then i never look at that folder again yeah yeah i know the feeling <laughs> yeah. I, I also know this is uh this week is is really slow in the publishing industry so uh don't really expect any news but if you guys come across anything happening this week no, I just I checked on Harper Collins. I mean, they're on day forty eight at this point on their their strike. Um, there are people working, um, but you know they're basically picking up the workload for everybody that isn't. Um, I feel horrible for you know people on both sides of that. You know, obviously if you if you're, you have to go into the office, you know they've got families to support. Like some people just can't not do it. They have to get that paycheck. Um, and for the people that are on the picket line, it's you know things are just as bad. You know, a lot of them have families too, and they've got no paycheck coming in at this point. Um, you know, with the holidays here, nobody is working to resolve this. Um, so they're in limbo for the next couple of weeks. That's 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 going to be brutal. But I'm hoping we're going to see something, you know, the first or second week of January and we can move beyond this. Um, aside from that, I didn't I didn't see a whole lot. I was actually out this morning just building a chicken coop for my daughter. So I'm like totally un unpublishing related stuff. I don't think you're allowed to keep her in that. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> probably not. But that's probably so I could hold that over her head, though. Like, that's where you're going if you keep doing what whatever. No, knowing uh, a kid, knowing kids, she'd be like, yahoo, she'd be all for it. Right. <laughs> well, she, she's been after us to get a pet, you know, as every kid does. And, you know, we've got this really nice house that we just finished a renovation on. And like, you know, I, I've had dogs, I've had cats and like they all make a mess of everything. Um, so like the idea of any of those things entering this house after we just finished it, like made me all twitchy. Um, and she, for whatever reason, just like zeroed in on chickens. She's like, I want chickens. Um, and there's a certain type and the name is escaping me at this point, but it doesn't even look like a chicken. It's like really frilly. It reminds me of gizmo from the, the gremlins. Um, but that's, um, that's what she's getting. Um, so the coop arrived this morning. I had to build a foundation to put it on because nothing is level in our backyard. Um, but it's blocking the view to the cemetery that's right behind us, which is kind of nice. You know, I get yeah. to look at live chickens instead of, you know, people that were buried in the 1800s. <laughs> Well, there's no, no coop building happening at my place. I'm sure it's not happening at Christine's either. No, no chicken coops, just one uh, <laughs> old and, and kind of cranky cat. That's all. <laughs> uh, well, cool. Um, so, yeah, let's get to the interview. Who do we got on, on deck uh, today, J.D.? We've got Tom Carnell. So he's a horror author. He's best known for his short stories. He's been featured in a lot of publications um, like Fangoria, Dread Central. His latest book is called Horror Book and released earlier this year. So here he is, Tom Carnell. 
Can you tell me what the uh, modern submission guidelines are for Swank Magazine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, at the time that I submitted to Swank, they King, Stephen King was saying like, oh yeah, this is an untapped market, like men's magazines. And I thought, hey, it's good enough for King, it's good enough for me. Um, and I ended up getting a lot of really great uh, rejection slips, like Hustler's Busty Beauties. I had one from them that I've kept forever. Um, but I sold it and it was, it was great. They, they did a really nice illustration. They paid me 600 bucks. So Nice. That was back in the day when nice. when you could do that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. cool. I've heard that to Men's Magazine. I don't know anything about it. I just I just heard. It was one of those like yeah, it's one of those things like you find now like wrapped in plastic behind the counter at Seven Eleven. Yeah, but you know, in all seriousness, like when I was doing uh, some research on you, I went back and looked, and like back in the day, Swank had some serious literary chops. I mean. Yeah. I couldn't believe that magazine started like, I think the first iteration was like in the forties or something. Yeah. 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 It was always, it was all of those like gent nugget and Cavalier and we magazine and all those, all those great things. And they were always consistently putting out great fiction. And so I thought, you know, Hey, back, but then again, back in that day, it, it was like the naivete, right. Of just like, I could do this. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'll submit in the same place that Isaac Asimov has. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thanks to the internet coming along and killing men's magazines. So there you go. Uh, I know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, uh, you, before we, before we started recording, you were talking about getting back into some movies and films. You mm. you have one of these um, projects that uh, I'm absolutely fascinated by. Can can you talk a little bit about your 365 films and 365 days uh, initiative? Yeah, for two years it was actually the 366 and 365. Um, it was just a matter of I watch a lot of I watch a lot of film like ridiculous amounts of film like three to four a day so it was just you know i was and on social media now i'll constantly put up my thoughts as it's happening sort of live tweeting um but it was just an opportunity where i would get with the i'm using air quotes again film literate and going oh have you ever seen this and so many people were going like no i've never ever even heard of that it's like well okay so i i put my whole website really is just like a resource. It's like, I've done the time watching this, this horrible film and here's a way to either steer you towards that if that's what you want or steer you away from it if it's not what you want. Um, and it was, in my, again, it was an opportunity. I, I've still been working on a book of all of that stuff, like a gigantic review book, um, but that always gets pushed aside yeah. for other things, you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, you, you have a you have a long history in writing and publishing, and uh, with with many publications under your belt. And one hmm. of the criticisms that I hear when I deal with uh, when I do some client work is that, well, you know, studying film it's it's a different medium than than say writing a short story or a novel. So, what do you get out of film analysis that then transfers hmm. over to your literary works? For me, it's it's all the same whether it's a book I'm reading or a film I'm watching or the old guy down at the, uh, at the bar going, let me tell you what happened one time. It's all what I call capital S story. Uh, I grew up sitting at my grandfather's knees. He would tell me stories and it was all, it's all the same. The language is different. The, the, the tropes can be different, but really 
I always equate it to building a house with your story as your foundation. And then every time you sort of go through your first draft is throwing up framing and your second draft is putting up drywall. And when you get to the point where you're just adjusting picture frames, you're, you're kind of done. So for me, film books, poetry, it's all means to an end of imparting an experience that hopefully resonates with not only me, me, the reader, but also other people that are reading that stuff as well. Yeah. So for me, it's all the same. It's all, you know, it's, it's all this one time at band camp, right? <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah. Tell me that. I want to know more about that. You know? Um, and I've always said that writers are just elaborate liars and the more elaborate our lie, the more it's easier the more easier it is to believe it. And so it's all for me, the language of lying <laughs> in a weird way. But yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. yeah, telling lies for a living. There's nothing better, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, if you would have talked to the 12 year old Tom and said, this is what you're going to be doing at one point in your life. It'd be like, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but here we are. Well, let's bridge that gap a little bit between the 12 year old Tom and, and where we are now. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with working with the dead, which I say is sort of tongue in cheek. Yeah, no, um, I I had gotten out of high school and went to work for music stores. I worked for, I was a buyer for Tower for many, many years, met my wife there, worked for a ton of record stores. Um, but around the time I got married, it was like, oh, this isn't going to cut it. You know, we, we, we had plans for children and all this other stuff. So I needed to do something to do. Um, when I was 15, uh, we lost a lot of people, like seven or eight people in, in a year in my family through age or whatever. Um, and I always remember that the funeral director that we met with, his role was sort of, it seems really noble to me, like you're, you're helping people at their absolute worst. Um, so I came home with hair down to the middle of my back and told my wife, I'm going to mortuary college and, and did uh, graduate the San Francisco College of Mortuary Science. Um, I got I, I passed, you know, a lot of the exams that we had to do. I was a certified eye and nucleus, meaning that I would go out in the middle of the night and remove eyeballs from people for cornea transplants. Oh, wow. um, so uh, what I didn't count, I thought it would be something that I could do in a way I could, could provide for my family. What it ended up doing was opening up this whole other world for me about that there's a beauty in all of it. And there's a, there's a um, there's a place there that we can find great comfort, um, and it's something that it's immediately it's something that is going to affect everyone. It's not someone something that we can we can talk about. It's like not the gay experience. It's not the trans experience. It's not the white experience. It's not this experience or that's what everyone su either suffers a death in their family or they themselves die. So it became this really rich. Um, ground to sort of if not till but at least look around and and be invited inside of I, I worked at a place in San Diego that uh as an arranger I would have meetings at 9 10 1 3 and 5 o'clock at night so every day you would walk into six or seven intense situations where someone had just lost someone very dear to them and you're having to be compassionate to that and then, and hear their story, but also get the job done because, you know, 
papers and things need to be signed and that kind of thing. Um, I consider that time in my life really lucky because it was it was a way, I had an old friend of mine, Bob Yount, who was the Dean of Students, who uh, is now a musician and his dad wrote the theme to Green Acres. Um, <laughs> But he he said that it's 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 this great privilege that we're given um, that most people don't get, and it and if you if you do get a peek behind the veil, it'll change your life, and it and it did. Um, just everything from seeing you know the fam familial dynamic of people arguing over money and like that being weird, but also understanding that other everyone processes this stuff different, and that's really helped as far as writing goes. Yeah, it must have really sharpened your sense of empathy and, and really allowed you to connect with people and their stories in a way that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, I, I, it was a given that I would come home from work and I'd come into my office here and shut the door and then cry for a half hour and then just sort of get it all off. And it was, in fact, the day I came home and didn't do that, that my wife pulled me aside and said, like, we should probably talk <laughs> because you're becoming either hardened to it or or what have you. And that she knew that's not where I wanted to be. So um, yeah, I quit, walked out of that, went to work for sleep in sleep for a long time. So, wow. So uh, how did you end up uh, working and or writing for Fangoria and Dread Central and some of these other uh, publications? Or uh, around that time, um, I had been going to FangoCons forever and just bothering Tony Timpone about stuff. And there, it was there that I met people like Chaz Ballin and, and all of these, these other people that little by little, I was sort of working in that periphery around the mid nineties. My wife and I started Carpenoctum, which was sort of a, we called it a dark art publication, but when you look at it, it's, it's pretty goth. <laughs> I'll say it was pretty goth. Um, but that got me to, because I was in charge of all the text in the in the book, who do you want to interview? I'd be like, let's interview Tony Timpone. And so we did that. Then when Carpenoctum went away, I just asked Tony, like, hey, do you got a place for me? And he said yes. And I worked there for a good long time. Um, and that was great. All of that afforded me this other part of the learning. And that was sitting at the knee of people, again, just like my grandfather, but sitting at the knee of people who could, who were really great. You know, um, I had one comes to mind. I had an interview with Neil Gaiman scheduled for an hour and he began by saying, let me tell you about writing and <laughs> talked for three hours. Wow. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, like watching the tape just spin. And those are kind of opportunities are, are, um, or you can't buy that kind of stuff. When someone who's really good at what they're doing wants to share that perspective with you, you need to be there with like a biscuit, just laughing <laughs> that up because because it's it's if nothing else, they won't give you where to put the comma, but they definitely will let you in on the on the mindset. You know, this isn't just something magical. This is a job, and you need to do it daily and you need to apply these things and then you have to put on your little barker hat and get out there and um you know do the ballyhoo to get people to to read it because these days the real hard part is being heard above the din right everyone's yeah. able to do it themselves um there used to be a gatekeeping progress a uh, process for good or for will of slush piles and editors and people like that um, but these days Anyone can do anything. As I like to say, the good news is anyone could publish a book. The bad news is anyone could publish a book. 
so you know you get a lot of skewing of standards and because there's no one there to say no you know and and for me that's where the learning begins like if i come up with some cockamamie idea and someone says no it's like well explain to me why then that'll help me learn to try to figure it out and i can pick and choose that over that whether it's something i want to bring into my personal mythology or do you want me just to just reject it out of hand so you know yeah do you have a, a dog in the fight of the uh the indie path versus the traditional path um it's all hard i mean i'm with crossroad press and crossroad is great but a lot of the promotion of that falls on to the author to to get out there and beat the brush and talk to find people that are doing podcasts like yourself and and like just try to get the word out you know short of dousing yourself with gas <laughs> lighting yourself on fire um i I see great things out of the, out of indies, people that are willing to take chances. Um, I talk a lot about, you know, to, to young writers, I'll tell them like, odds are you're not going to make a million dollars doing this. So you should really feed you, you know, swing for the fences because why not? You know, you can worry about pulling it back later but like be brave now because there's no one that's going to stop you i've had i put stories in some of my collections that there's no way that they would ever have passed muster um um so uh at least at the end of the day i could go that was everything i put in that book it's my best at the time and you know and just go with it and realize that it may not bounce well in a few years or what have you. But um, I think it's all about being honest with the people that have, that have been kind enough to pick up your book to even leaf through it, you know, um, because I think audiences are smart and they can tell when you're lying and you're bullshitting. Um, and you have to respect that. Um, uh, otherwise they'll, <laughs> they'll let you know. <laughs> yes, they will. One way or another. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, Which is great. I love those bad reviews. I love when people yeah. will say like, this didn't work for me because then it's like, okay, good to know. As long as the bad review isn't, I ordered this on Tuesday and Amazon said it would be here <laughs> Thursday and it's still not here. One star. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, or, or just personal gripes. You know, I, yeah. I don't, I ran into a lot of pushback on the first novel because there's a lot of cussing in it um, because every I've trained martial arts for years, every fighter I've ever known cusses like a sailor. And so I just thought, okay, it took time for me to realize that the way it hits the, the way the F word hits the ear and the way it hits the eye can be very, very different. You know, in, in your ear, it just becomes a, what I call a helper word. Um, in fact, when we were doing the audiobook for the first book, No Flesh Shall Be Spared, I got a bunch of audition tapes from different readers. And I had to have real conversations about how to use the F word. You know, like you don't wind up on it so much. It's just, it's like, ah, uh, you know. And so having done that, it created some really great, some of those tapes are awesome. <laughs> They're just awesome. Nice keepsakes. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. We just—I just got a great one from the new book, Tuxedo Junction. They were doing an audio book of that, uh, and the guy's very austere. Um, 
I wanted for No Flesh, Sally Spirit, a buddy of mine, Neil Kaplan, who does the voice for Tychus Finley, if you know StarCraft II. Um, but he's got he's got this gruff, gravelly, you know, it's about damn time kind of voice. And I'm like, oh, I want that so bad. But it didn't work out. But yeah. <laughs> nice. I got a uh, I got something I want to read to you. And I know <laughs> there's a story behind this and I can't wait to hear it. This is uh this is this is the quote. No one has done more for legitimizing the beauty of the horror genre than Tom Carnell. Yeah. And that was spoken by Mr. Clive Barker. Tell us about that. Yes. Clive uh it became a thing when I was working for Fango that every year I would just interview Clive. Um he was doing a, a book on um it was an art book and going to his house and and going into the the studio room where it was four gigantic rooms all lined with paintings side by side, just completely around the four rooms. And you think, wow. And then when I got closer, I looked and each painting was the front of a pile of 10 or 15 paintings oh. all the way around the room. So um, that's how that friendship sort of happened. Uh, we were doing an interview at one point and I, we had talked about the beauty of, even within the most horrible things you can describe, there's, there's always beauty in there. And then he said that, and I was like, Oh, uh, that would look great on my press kit. And he's like, it's yours if you want it. So oh, I, I, nice. I happily took that. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, but he was another one of those guys that showed that you could be, it's all in the same. The painter is the same as the, the writer and as the sculptor and that we're all doing, working in the same field. It's just that our, our toys are different. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I think Josh Mallerman's another example, you know, he's a, a, a musician, uh, and, and a writer and a novelist mm -hmm. and it's, it's all tapping the same source. Well, it's amazing how many people are Greg Spector is a musician. Our Richard Christian Matheson is a great drummer and, you know, all these people that are, that are finding it's all communicating, right. It's whether it's through song or through text or, or you know, or what have you. Yeah. We're always really curious about process. So can you, can you tell us, uh, you know, um, what, what is your writing process? Do you write at a certain time of the day in a certain place, uh, daily binge? How, how do you do it? Um, I, I have a schedule. So in the morning, I kind of copied this from Caitlin Kiernan. Um, in the morning, I, I look at yesterday's words and go through them and edit them and what have you. Afternoon after lunch is when new words get generated because I'm going to look at them the following day. Um, choosing what to write about really, it's, it's odd. It all starts with, a, with a, what I call a puzzler. Um, can you write something and change everything with just with the last line? Um, uh, can you, um, uh, in the first collection, there's a story called Clown Town. And the idea there was, I, it just came to me where someone pointed in, in a clown suit said, listen, clown. And that that started me thinking like, well, how how do we make that work? And and that brought us to a, the end result, which was a world where social structure is dictated by what kind of clown you are um, set in a sort of Agatha Christie-esque dining room mystery of the 
you know, like Knives Out, where the detective goes from group to group to group. And by the time he gets all the way around the room, he solved the mystery and what have you. So it always something that usually makes me laugh. Um, um, or or somehow sparks an imagination. I, I thought at one point, what if a child was born with a Midas touch that every time it touched something, it didn't turn it to gold, it just killed it. And how would that person grow up? And so we sort of built from there. So it's usually something that when I think about it, I just kind of chuckle to myself and I think that's crazy. Um, but then it doesn't let go. And then I start sort of putting the screws to this ridiculous idea and saying, okay, given this ridiculous idea, how do we make this work? How do we, how do we ground it in reality? How do we, I get caught up in that a lot. There's in the zombie books, there's a lot of fighting and those fight, all that fight stuff really works. <laughs> so I, I dragged friends in and training partners and I just need you to stand here and do this and then sort of work it all out. Um, uh usually i write longhand first draft and then once that it, it feels like automatic writing in a weird way where i sort of disengage and just start moving um then once it's in and once i have it printed out then i start going through it and again it's building the house it's putting up drywall and putting in the, the toilets and making sure everything works and and then um uh I usually keep to three passes, three or four passes, five if it's in trouble. Um, uh, and I've got a great beta reader who I trust implicitly, a girl named Heather that is awesome. She'll look me dead in the eye and go, this doesn't work. <laughs> you need those. You need those. I, and I cherish her because she'll do that. I would rather hear what doesn't work than hear what does work because I can blow smoke at my own dress. I don't need you to do that for me. What I need you to do is tell me like that the dress doesn't fit or. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It, but it's always different. I've tried things. I just did something into um, the new thing I'm working on I, that I just delivered. It's called just called horror book uh, where um, I just started tape and just started talking um, and that seemed to work out for that story. Um, it had to do with an interrogation. So it just made sense to just sit here and, and um, uh, do it that way as opposed to trying to map it all out. Just let it go and then we can add stuff, you know, heap on stuff later. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Thanks, man. Thanks for yeah, sharing it is. that with us. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, we, we like to kind of pull all the conversations to close in, in, in a similar way. So this is a kind of a fun question. You can take it wherever you want to go, but uh, mm. this is, these are, these are uh, very crazy times right now. Things are, are changing really fast. Uh, where do you think the publishing industry is going? What's, what's on the horizon mm. for us? Uh, well, I think that, um, think about that for a second. Um, I think that ultimately it's for our benefit. The more that there's out there, the more that people are able to spark their imagination and, and maybe hopefully it, it inspires them to do their own stuff. Um, uh, selling, I think that I think Amazon is kind of where it's going to be some, some central clearinghouse for us all. Um, uh, 
I'm optimistic because I think that tough times have always brought sparked really great literature. Um, if only just as a ways for the writer to deal with it. You know, they, they I can't say this in real life, but I can certainly say it here. Um, but I'm excited. I think that once we, you know, with the days of Patreon and this kind of stuff where you can actually get help, you know, it's not just you working at some crummy job just to make ends meet so you can do what's really important to you. And that's the work it's able, people are able to, and, and seem to be excited about being a part of that process watching, you know, I, I follow a lot of people on Patreon, like people like Chet Sar and these kind of people where they're, they're, they're so free with what they're doing. They're like, look at this. There's, here's the initial sketch and this is how this is going to work out. And it's, it's great because I think it also helps the, the person watching to understand it's not a magic trick. It's not, just I walk up to a painting and I swirl some paint around and there's the Mona Lisa. It's like, no, it's work and it's it's a job. Um, it's why I get so infuriated when I hear about people talking about, oh, my character spoke to me and my character demanded that this happen. It's like, no, you're in charge. <laughs> like it's your, you know, I get that. There are things that you that the character will and won't do, but you're in the driver's seat and you should take ownership of that and for make it, you know, forge it to your will. Um, that said, there's always those times when you sit down in one whack. Um, I did a story called when I fall in love, it will be forever. Um, that came out in one whack, literally sat here for two hours, typing it all out, just weeping. Just I cry a lot, just crying as I was, I was typing it, but, you know, there's a there's a connection and there's an emotionality there that I think holds true, you know. There are so many ways I can go with this <laughs> with this <laughs> questioning of you guys. What an interesting character Tom was. Uh JD, back in the day, were you submitting to Swank magazine? <laughs> Not Swank, but I actually have a story about Playboy. Um, so they, these magazines actually paid really well. Um, and you know, any guy who's actually got a playboy, anybody's actually looked at one, like they actually had legit stories and articles and things in there. It wasn't just pretty pictures. Um, and they, they, you know, because of the, the rest of the, you know, the, they, they made so much money, they were able to pay good. So play, playboy at one point was paying around $2 a word for uh, fiction. Um, so I wrote a story, they agreed to the, the premise of it. I, I knocked it out. It was 2,700 words. Um, and I finished it and went out to lunch or, uh, and when I came home, somebody had broken into my apartment um, and they stole the laptop that I had wrote it on. Oh. And this was, this was 1990. So there, there was no backup, you know, at least not in my world. Um, they stole that. They stole a, a glass head that somebody had bought for me, like a, from Pier 66. It was basically a glass skull that I just had sitting on the kitchen counter, um, the laptop. And there was one other thing. I can't remember what it was. Um, but yeah, so that was it. So I had, I basically finished up the story, had no backup of it, um, fully intended to sell it to Playboy. And then it was gone. And I just, I never bothered after that. Um, but I know a lot of people who did very well with with all of those magazines, you know, writing writing in that world. And, you know, like I, I just started subscribing to um, Wired magazine again, and they've got fiction in there, which is kind of neat. So it's it's a market that, you know, I think if you tapped it back in the day, you definitely made some money and, you know, it's it's moved on to other publications, too. Yeah, um, I know. Um, Christine, a few years ago, you were you got sold some pieces, didn't you, to magazines? Uh, yeah, I did. Not to Playboy, although Playboy <laughs> uh, published one of my favorite short stories by Chuck Palahniuk, which was Guts. And if you are oh, not guts. squeamish and you haven't read that short story, 
It is phenomenal. Uh, yeah, I've, I've sold a couple of short stories to some pro-paying magazines, but just kind of short fiction, which is fun. I haven't done that for a while, honestly. I haven't written short fiction for quite a few years. I've been really novel, serial fiction focused, but I did enjoy doing it when I did it, you know, early on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. Tom seems to be one of the most diversified authors we've spoken to. It seems like he's really got some innovative revenue streams, some some channels that he's exploiting that that most people don't. Uh, and it seems like, especially with the Fangoria stuff, I mean, getting the Clive Barker is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would love to see the guy's house. You know, I'm like, I've got a nice office, but like, it's not four rooms, <laughs> you know, li lined with paintings. I mean, th that sounds what Clive Barker's office would look like, you know, and like Dan Brown, his office looks exactly like you would expect it to look, um, you know, certain authors just kind of do, um, you know, most of the authors that, that I know that are working in, you know, as a career author, you know, they, they tend to have this. And Joanna Penn talks about it all the time, multiple revenue streams. Um, you know, there may be a public face of one of your, your revenue streams, which, you know, in, in most cases, I think is the name that you, you slap on your novels. Uh, but many authors, you know, behind the scenes, they're doing, you know, five, ten other different things. And it all comes together. You know, like in my world, we've talked about the real estate stuff. You know, it's got nothing to do with writing, but it was financed by the writing. You know, so like they all kind of play hand in hand. Um, you know, I still do the occasional ghostwriting project if it makes sense and my name doesn't appear on any of that stuff um and i know a lot of other authors that that do that too you know writing memoirs and things and you know if, if it helps you float the ship you know keep keeps your you know keeps everything running so you can pound out novel after novel you know i i think it's the right thing to do because you know every book you put out there with your name on it it raises the boat a little bit and raises your visibility and you know sooner or later you may or may not have to do these other projects uh, but it is nice to have your revenue coming in from multiple places so you're not dependent on one yeah, I, I have a I have sort of a Clive Barker story. I I was supposed to be in his office uh, about I don't know was it six or seven years ago. Uh, I I like to say I did a collaboration with Clive Barker and Nine Inch Nails, and technically I kind of did. Uh, I I I spent years emailing Clive Barker's people to get permission to adapt one of his short stories into like a multimedia thing where. I did video, video editing, and then I used Nine Inch Nails music from, from the first two Ghost records, which was in um, Creative Commons for non-commercial use. So I used Nine Inch Nails music, Clive Barker short story, and I did the narration and the video editing and just kind of did it you know, as a fun piece. And I was talking to his people for, for several years throughout the process, and when it was done... I had like a hundred uh, DVDs, like limited edition DVDs made up and I gave them out to my list as like little keepsakes. And I had one for, for Clive Barker and I was going to be in California. And I think he lives in Beverly Hills. And uh, like two days before uh, my contact, there was like, oh, sorry, the schedule changed. And and I was bummed, but I, like, I think I understand a whole lot better now that like people at that level are just pulled in so many different directions that you can't count on that meeting unless you're you're sitting in it. So I I like to think I was this close to being in Clive Barker's office, but it might have been a whole lot, lot bigger than that. I don't know. Did you get the media to him? I did. did yeah, I dropped it off at his place. So you know, I, I'm assuming he you know he he got to see it. Uh, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It, it took a long time, and there was no payoff. Like there was no financial gain, but um, it was an incredible experience. And I think I still have it online somewhere. I'll throw a link in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. 
Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't read him, and yeah, you know, I, I really think they should because like he's one of those names that you know people just think horror, like super scary. I'm not going to touch it. Like they just they're afraid to actually open the books. Um, but like Books of Blood, you know, which again is a scary title, are some of the best short stories I've ever read. Um, you know, horror or not, like they are just the, the writing is just it's beautiful. You know, in a lot of ways and and frightening. But like he just he ticks so many different boxes with his writing. He's he's one of the most talented people I think in the industry. Um. The F word. He brought this up. Do you do you guys use the F word at all? Like, do you swear? Or your characters swear? Or do you, you or do you purposely keep that out of the books? Book dependent for me. Yeah. Yeah, a bit book dependent. I do, and then I'll usually cut back because I'm like, wow, that's a lot of F words. I don't know if <laughs> if that's just like my inner teenager from back in the day coming out, and like it just spills out in the page. Like, I don't use that many F words in real life, but yeah, I don't mind using them. But I know some people do get pretty like upset if there's a lot of cussing in their fiction so it is you know, kind I'm of a line right that. i mean it's kind of a line when like once you cross it there's a certain reader who will never pick up another one of your books yeah yeah you know like jeffrey deaver as far as i know he's never had a character used a, a swear word in one of his books and like i honestly never noticed that until i think i heard him talk about it in an interview um you know so i've read you know a million of his books and i've just i've never picked up on on that fact um when i first started writing with patterson i like in our, our first conversation he's like avoid the f word <laughs> and we, we still used it you know like there's just there's always too many of them and and a lot of my bad reviews like when i go through it i click on the one star reviews like it's because of language um but you know and in my world, I'm writing serial killer thrillers and, and cops swear, you know, they yeah. swear a lot. Um, then they're usually pretty, pretty nasty as far as language goes. So like, I just, I feel like it, it's character dependent. Um, but it's just, it's, I think everybody definitely needs to look at it. And Jay, like you had mentioned for some titles, you don't. Um, and I know you're writing more along the mystery line, I think right now. Right. And like in that world, you really don't like you yeah. purposely stay away from it. Um, cause it's, you know, one, one level away from cozies. Um, yeah. So he brought that up. Um, the other thing that he mentioned, he said, do you feel like you're, or I wrote this down. Do you feel like you're in charge when you're writing or are the characters in the driver's seat? Like he, he said that he is. And like in my world, like it's the characters, you know, like in a lot of ways, like I've, I can try to steer the ship in a certain direction and force them to go a certain way. But then, you know, the next sentence that comes out of me will be the character doing something, trying to take it in another direction. And I know that may sound weird to anybody who doesn't write. Um, but when I fight that, the, the writing sucks. You know, if, if I let it happen, if I follow the character and, and and, you know, that that's when it's good. And like, honestly, that's where I see characters with different personalities, you know, different different traits and stuff all starting to come out. Yeah. You know, for me, I, 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 I you know, thought about that as we were talking about it. And then again, as I as I listened to this episode preparing for for our talk today. And I think for me, what, what there there are certain types of authors who say that to non-authors to give them the sense that it's like, to impress them, right? Like there's almost something magical about it. like, oh, the characters talk to me. And like, I, I know, like I know what they mean, but I, I just think there are some people who use that as like cocktail party banter to like have other people go, oh my gosh, that must be amazing to be a writer and have characters talk to you. It's not quite like that, you know, but like I think there are, there are people who like to, to present that way. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's more like of a, a consistency thing because it's like, you know, you're like, oh, I want I want the character to do this for the plot. And, the, and then you're like, uh, that's not consistent with their character, though. That's something they wouldn't do. So you kind of have to revamp and rework it sometimes. But yeah, I guess you could be like, it's a character talking to me because it's like, oh, they're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. And you're like, OK, what is that really a character talking to you? I don't know. But I'm also a pretty severe outliner. So it might be different if you're not. 
I, I honestly think that's where it comes from because you, you plot out the story, you know, and if, whether you're creating an outline or not, like you've got a general idea of where it's going to go, but that's basically you as the author dictating where it's going to go. And I think once you actually start the writing process, that's, you know, for a lot of us, that's where our characters really come together and become real people. And once they become real people, you know, they, that, that, you know, they have opinions, they've got, they do things in certain ways. And those, those things may be different from you as the author or, you know, what you would originally expected from that character. Um, and I think that's why, like in a lot of ways you do need to follow that. And in my world anyway, it tends to work out better when I, when I do so, but it's, it's cool to be cognizant of it. Yeah, for sure. It was, uh, it was just such a blast to talk to Tom and, uh, I I know we, we haven't talked about it in the wrap up, but he has one of the, the most fitting, uh, former jobs of any horror writer (laughs) I've ever heard of. So, uh, yeah, fascinating guy, really interesting and, uh, and great writer. So definitely, definitely check out his stuff. So JD, who do we got up next week? Uh, next week, we've got Claire Douglas coming on. She's the author of, of numerous thrillers. Her latest is called The Couple at Number Nine. It hit number one on Amazon, uh, number three in the Sunday Times. Um, her next book is called The Girls Who Disappeared and releases in January. So she's going to be on to talk about that. Excellent. Looking forward to it. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.